Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to our podcast series on US-UK tax and estate planning. I'm delighted to still be joined by Chris McAmore of McAmore Conchnick LLP. Uh, we're talking about will planning today. This is the second half of the uh, discussion, so if you didn't see the first half, I recommend that you go listen to that uh, wherever you found this episode. Uh, we're going to turn to some of the more substantial uh, discussion topics now in the second half, starting with uh, the driving factors that um, decide what form of will a client's will takes. I don't know about you, Chris, but I um, really start by saying to clients that there are three principal way, three principal um, objectives clients want to get out of wills, and ninety-nine percent of clients have the exact same uh, agenda for two of the items. Clients generally want their wills to be as simple as possible. There's no need for undue complexity, and clients generally want their um, wills to be as tax efficient as possible without getting silly about the amount of tax you're trying to save. You know, we often use the idiom of not letting the tax tail wag the dog. And that is the case in will planning as much as anything else. So really, clients come to us and say, don't make it complicated, make it tax efficient. And then the question really becomes, well, how much complexity do we bring in in order to make it tax efficient? And how much complexity do we bring in in order to achieve other forms of estate planning, like asset protection? You know, can this client get away with a simple will that just leaves everything to their spouse? And after the spouse's own death, it then, th- then passes down to the children. Very simple, very straightforward. It's what most wills in this country do. Or do we need to think about putting some structures in place that protect assets, either because there's a tax-efficient reason to do so, maybe leaving assets on a trust, or because there are complexities in the family. Maybe we have a second marriage. Maybe there are members of the family who don't get on as well, and we need to provide them with the framework to make sure that the funds are custodied in an appropriate manner so that, you know, the family doesn't fall out. And that is the place from which the discussion starts. We start from how straightforward can we make this and we move to the complexity where the case demands. Do you have a sort of a similar process? Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, simplicity is always a driving factor for clients. And it's in part because inevitably people have seen wills that, that maybe they've helped to administer. Maybe it was a parent or, or a sibling They may have seen trust documents. They may have acted as a trustee. And those documents um, contain uh, a a lot of legalese, especially the U.S. documents. And it's U.S. legalese, which is even worse. (laughs) Um, You know, the difficulty is that what clients also want is flexibility. And the trade-off between simplicity and flexibility is a really difficult tension. Because when clients see you know, what I think is a moderately complex will that maybe you and I have drafted together, what they'll see is what appears to be a lot of complexity. What that's providing is flexibility. And, and what I mean by that is that the will is dealing with a lot of variables, all of which or most of which are unknown. When will you die? Who will survive you? What will your assets be? Where will they be? What will be the you know country that's adjudicating the will? What's the tax law at the time? And you know, is somebody has somebody's circumstances materially changed in the interim? You know, is somebody vulnerable now uh, when they weren't when the will was drafted? You know, it's impossible to predict those things in a simple document. So a will that says, "I want," you know, let's let's say you have um, two children and your spouse predeceases you. You know, a simple will that says, "I want." 50% to go to child one and 50% to go to child two outright and free of trust, um, you know, is very simple. It provides zero flexibility. 
And, you know, again, imagine a scenario in which one of those children is in a vulnerable circumstance at the time. That could be something like addiction. That could be something like a mental health issue. It could be incapacity. It could be creditors. It could be divorce. Uh, all of those issues, um, you know, had you known them at the time, uh, might have driven a different outcome. So, you know, either perhaps both children wouldn't receive everything outright, or maybe one child in a vulnerable circumstance would have received assets on trust, or they would have been held for that person's benefit for a period of time. But you can't know that that's what's going to happen. So I think that is is the tension. Yes, clients come often, they say, look, I want it to be simple, and I, I want to deal with the tax, but I don't want to go to extreme lengths. Um, but at the same time, I think what we have to remember is that at the end of the day, what, what you really want is, you know, in everybody's dream scenario, uh, I mean, you know, God forbid something happens to you, you die, but you can then look at the circumstances as they were at that moment and parcel out the assets in the most appropriate way. But but you're dead, so you can't do that. And you're handing those assets over to someone else to administer on your behalf. Um, and so how do you continue to have that little bit of control? And th- the answer is, you know, complexity, or at least a bit of complexity. As lawyers, we are risk-averse people, and it is our job to at least show you the range of options that could happen. Now, in 99% of cases, a family, a nuclear family, is very happy and nothing will go wrong. What we are doing in creating flexibility, as Chris exactly says, is we are providing the executors with the tools in the future to deal with those options if if, if and when they arise. We're hoping they don't arise, and in most cases, they don't arise. But you don't want to have a a, a document that's too rigid and, and breaks in the wind rather than swaying with it. Uh, to your point about the various uh, outcomes that um, might arise, I sometimes describe them as the four Ds. You've got death, divorce, debts, and drugs. Um, you can have the four Ds if you want. Um, uh, but you are exactly right. The uh, What we sometimes say to clients is, let's say that your child uh, on your death was due to receive half of your estate. If that child is at that time going through a really difficult divorce, um, there's every chance that the, the, the soon-to-be former spouse is going to know about the fact they have an ill parent. And God forbid we don't want to presuppose anything into our clients. But if a, if, if a client's parent dies and then a week later a divorce, uh, the divorce proceedings are started, well, your inheritance might be included as part of that divorce proceedings when it comes to the financial settlement. Compare that to a uh, an executor or a trustee who has a degree of discretion over when distributions are made to a surviving child um, and can and is given the appropriate guidance in an accompanying letter of wishes, let's say, from the testator that says, you know, I'd like you to exercise discretion if it seems in the circumstances that my child is not in a, a fit state at that point to receive the money that could maybe delay some or all, not necessarily all of it, but some of that um, inheritance until an appropriate future point, just managing out those rough edges as the money passes down. There's not actually that much more complexity to put in something that straightforward. And it's something that Chris and I will do for our clients very frequently. And so there's no reinventing of the wheel to put that sort of flexibility in. It goes back to the point that Chris was making in our first half of this discussion. Don't come to us saying, I think I need two wills. A good estate planning lawyer, a good will drafter should ask you the questions that that sort of draw out your objectives and draw out your, your principles. And then it's for us to say to you, this is what I recommend is the most appropriate structure that gives effect to your wishes in the best way and most flexible way possible. So we have that experience to say, you know, 
what are your opinions on? What is your risk uh, appetite for? You know, how much you trust your child's partner? How much do you like your grandchild? How much do you want your uh, your children's stepmother to have full and unfettered access to this wealth after your death? And how much do you want it to be custodied in a more controlled manner? These are all questions that we might ask that we can implement in the most appropriate way. And as ever, the theme with this episode, it just depends on the client and the circumstances. We will, we will affect what we think is probably the most appropriate planning for you in those circumstances. Well, yeah, you, you use the, the bend, don't break kind of analogy. And I think that's, that's right. You're trying to get a document that, that accommodates the needs. You know, and sometimes we're looking at outcomes that seem unlikely. So you know, most of my clients that, that come in to do a will know exactly when they're going to die and exactly what's going to happen and what the circumstances will be. You know, I'm not going to die for X many years. You know, and I appreciate that that's how we think about this. And as an, somebody who drafts wills frequently, you know, I become kind of cavalier when I think about death because I think about it so often. And I appreciate that when you're reflecting on your own mortality, it's difficult. But if you think about a circumstance where actually you don't live another 20 years, you die in the near term, and actually you and your partner or spouse die contemporaneously, leaving young children, that's an unlikely scenario. It's also the scenario in which your estate plan has to do the most work. If you die in 30 years' time with only adult children who are themselves financially stable, they don't have any of the, the four Ds you know, hovering over them, yeah, the will that gets prepared now in anticipation of that is going to be a bit of overkill. And a lot of the provisions that are going to be there as options for executors won't come to pass and the assets will pass in a fairly straightforward way. Um, but why on earth would you not prepare properly for the unlikely but very difficult situations? Um, and I think that's where flexibility comes in. And one way, even in a basic situation to illustrate that, you know, sometimes clients will say, I don't want trust. I don't want a lot of language. I want $100,000 to go um, you know, to the dogs and cats home and everything else to my children. Um, but what if your estate is diminished significantly? you know, because of debts, because of divorce, because of whatever, you know, downturn in the, in the market. Care home Down, fees. Exactly, care home fees. Suddenly, the $100,000, you know, gift, um, which was at 1.1% of your estate is suddenly, you know, 30% of your estate. You know, would you want, you know, how much do you love cats and dogs at that point? So, you know, the simplest thing to do would be to build in 100,000 here, 100,000 there, everything else 50% outright to the kids. There are, you know, 80 chances out of 100 that that's going to be inappropriate at the time. 20 times out of 100, it's still right. And that's great. Um, but as you said, we're risk averse lawyers. Um, you know, we need to, to account for all of those potential outcomes. But I don't even think it, it requires us to be risk averse, although I am. I think it just requires somebody being realistic about what life really looks like or what life might really look like when it comes time that you die and the will gets kind of brought into being. I, I sometimes say to clients, and for those that have ever had to uh, carry out risk assessments, they might be familiar with the, um, the methodology where you talk about um, the likelihood of a risk occurring and the impact of the risk of the, of the event if it does occur. Um, you know, when you are young, you are less likely to die. But exactly as Chris says, the consequence of you dying is often more severe. And so 
it sort of equalizes over the course of your life. Uh, it is, you know, not infrequent that a client comes to me and says, well, we'll start with the simple will. And as our assets get more complicated, we will think about maybe a more complex will. And if anything, the reverse is true. You just have to sort of Benjamin Button your way through will planning, which is that you probably actually, in some circumstances, want the most complex will earlier, because at the very least, you've got minor children. And it's the minor children that will require the most amount of sort of bubble wrapping around them after you've passed. You know, bear in mind, in those circumstances, those are children who would have lost both their parents, um, as opposed to the couple that have been married 50 years are in their 80s, uh, and they have children in their 50s and 60s. Yeah, at that point, we might be absent tax, which we're going to come on to in a second. Uh, we might be able to think about a more straightforward will because everyone's grown up, everyone's got kids of their own, and everyone's very sensible. So it's not one of those things where it necessarily gets more complex the older you get. It really, okay, I come back to it again, it really comes down to the facts in those circumstances. And Chris and I are here and we will take you through those. Um, you, know, you tell us what you want and we'll tell you what we think you need. But one of the biggest ways that will determine you know, the amount of wealth that is available to pass down to uh, heirs is going to be how much of that doesn't go to your heirs but goes to the tax man instead. Either the delightful agents at the IRS or the delightful agents at HMRC, possibly both. Um, so clearly, as Chris already alludes to, I think in the first half of this discussion, um, a lot of the time that we spend thinking about will planning for our clients is thinking about tax efficiency. And when it comes to US and UK planning, tax efficiency is something that we have to consider very, very carefully. Chris has already alluded correctly to the fact that our sort of probate, our estate planning laws are uh, so derived from the same sort of common parent, common ancestor. And the same is broadly this, uh, the case for um, for our tax laws as well. I'm, Chris, I'm, I'm going to sort of leave the Louisianas of this world uh, out of the discussion because they have a bit more French about them. And, and, and uh, But I'm sort of, you know, the, the remaining sort of, you know, l- large bulk of the US tax code and the UK tax code, be both based on common law jurisdictions, you'd agree are, you know, broadly similar in principle in that it's the estate that is taxed, the beneficiaries then inherit. Um, you take your debts off at the estate level uh, as opposed to a common law jurisdiction where in, say, Spain or in France, where we're thinking about each individual heir paying tax, and that's going to affect the planning in a very different way. Yeah, I think it's funny. In the US, I mean, and I should say, we have an estate tax. We actually have three transfer taxes, estate tax, gift tax, and generation skipping transfer tax. I'm only going to talk about estate planning or estate tax in this in this podcast because that's what's appropriate here. Um, I would also note that many states in the U.S. have state level estate tax or inheritance tax, or both in some cases. Uh, but again, we're not going to talk about state level issues right now. Uh, so we've got the federal estate tax in the U.S., which is what we'll be talking about today. I always find it interesting that in this country you call it an inheritance tax, which is typically viewed as a tax on inheritance that the mm-hmm. recipient is paying, but it really is exactly as in the US an estate tax that's levied, that's suffered by the estate and paid before anything you know from the estate is distributed out to the beneficiaries. But as you said, by and large, they operate slightly differently. You don't have a gift tax in this country. The two taxes work in a, a quite similar way, which is great for us as planners because there's just enough complexity to make it interesting, but you can actually get things to work together in most circumstances. But the problem there is that actually, um, you know, George Bernard Shaw, the two countries divided by a common language. The problem sometimes is that we are we look and sound very similar, 
And so people sometimes assume, oh, things must be the same. You use the word trust and domicile. We use the word trust and domicile. Oh, they must therefore mean the same thing. And they absolutely don't. If you're dealing with a wholly different civil law jurisdiction, like, say, France, I know we keep picking on the French, but you know, this is a British podcast. Um, any tax planner is going to know that the American and the French systems are very different. And so you're not even going to try and weave those two together, whereas someone might be under the misunderstanding that the American and the British tax codes are sufficiently similar where you can just kind of get away with it and you can wing it. Um, it is true that you know, because we are built from similar principles, that there are similar forms of relief. There are similar exemptions. You know, We both give exemptions for certain types of business property. We both give generous exemptions when assets are passing to a surviving spouse, for example. Um, and so you can build in similar forms of planning. Um, but where you end up with the differences, those differences can be really quite severe. So you know, to Chris's point that he's made previously, the US lifetime gift and estate tax allowance in the US is $12 million. The UK allowance is at its basic level, £325,000. Know, we are talking 10, 20, 30 fold greater than the UK allowance. Even when your allowance, Chris, sunsets in 2026, to you know, half your current allowance, you're still going to be many, many, many multiples ahead of ours. And so the sorts of clients that are thinking about tax planning, the sorts of clients for whom tax is going to be relevant to their will planning discussion is vastly different in the US compared to the UK. And that catches people, that catches Americans who are here in the UK, perhaps more frequently than a lot of other sort of resident non-domiciliaries, or I say resident non-domiciliaries, residents, because those individuals who say have been here for long enough where they are now deemed to be UK domiciliaries, um, have gone from having an allowance of $12 million on their worldwide estate, and they thought, oh, you know, I've only got a small UK bank account. Maybe I've got a small UK home, but you know, I'm comfortable paying that small amount of tax. I'm, I'm aware that you know, my $10 million estate in the US is not going to be touched. Well, suddenly you're a deemed domiciliary here in the UK, and your worldwide estate is now not only exposed to US estate tax, but is exposed to UK inheritance tax, and our allowances are nowhere near as generous. And so that inequity in terms of the way in which we approach the balances and the release is what causes the unique relationship between the US and the UK tax codes and trying to create a harmonious end result for our clients. Would you agree? Well, I think yes, but anybody who thinks that the two systems you know, will be the same needs to just reflect on the way that their income tax returns work out. You know, you think that the two income tax systems are broadly the same. I mean, yep. really, aside from the fact that you guys have a separate capital gains tax and we lump capital gains in with income tax, you know, just thinking off the top of my head, otherwise they're pretty much the same, but good luck trying to complete your US tax return uh, without the help of a qualified professional. The two languages just don't, you don't work together. Um, and it's the same is the case with, with estate planning. Um, even some of the language that you've just used, so for instance, with respect to deemed domicile and domicile and the distinction on that point there, um, it, it you know, is enough to cause somebody to reflect, you know, what does that mean? Um, and, you know, what do those concepts mean for me? And what does it mean for my estate plan? Um, but actually, as you were talking about that, I was thinking this is another reason to do a will early. Uh, we think about obviously lots of reasons to do it when you're young. You're more likely to have uh, younger children if you do indeed have children. You're a little, you know, more likely um, 
to be have smaller finances and, and means that won't just naturally spread as far. But also, you're at an opportunity where you can take advantage of some planning. We've been talking about wills, but now we're on to wills as it relates to tax. There's some planning that can be undertaken. Some of that planning goes away, and it goes away the longer you spend time in this country. So again, that speaks in favor of, of at least thinking about will planning early. Um, because yes, we've just identified the ways that the two systems are very different, the US and the UK with respect to inheritance tax and estate tax. Um, and that means that the two systems are gonna have to be married up appropriately under a will, but it also means that there are opportunities um, for tax planning, but they're always gonna be uh, you know, more favorable if you look at them earlier, at least have some of those concepts in your mind. So absolutely, I, I think you know, two languages separated by, or two countries separated by a common language, um, but again, if you've ever done an income tax return yourself or with a professional, you'll know just how different those languages can be. I, 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 I every, I mean, some listening to this podcast might may know, many won't. I used to be an American citizen myself, and gosh, the, some of the American tax forms, an FBAR, W8 Benz, they just are some of the least attractive forms visually, let alone complexity to to to, to fill in. So I, I. Hear you and hear you very strongly, Chris. It's worth thinking that this whole point about, say, release difference in the nil rate band in the UK and the lifetime allowance in the US, you know, that is ever present. Whether you're talking about a simple will that just says, I leave everything to my wife or husband if they die after me, if they don't die after me, then I, um, if they die before me, I should say, then I leave it to my kids. You know, that is always going to come in. God forbid that we're now introducing some of the complexity some of the flexibility that we discussed previously when we're talking about trust planning. Because in the UK and separately in the US, there can be very good non-tax reasons for introducing trusts into your estate plan, into your will planning. And there can be very good tax reasons why you want to do so as well, particularly where in the US, you know, I, I defer to Chris as the American attorney, but you know, if you're leaving assets to a non-American, trusts are a really important part of your planning because you might not be getting the, the marital allowances anyway. And in the UK, in order to custody assets appropriately in the long term, you might want to be using uh, a trust as well. But anyone listening to this podcast should take great care in assuming that because a trust works in one jurisdiction, the trust might work in the other jurisdiction. Again, they're built on very similar principles, but it only takes a very slight tweak for the the surviving sort of spouse's will trust to be completely inefficient in the other jurisdiction. It is possible to marry them up, but it is not without care and attention uh, uh, that they must do so. Yeah, I think trust planning, you know, sometimes people, um, well, if you're an American, let's, let's say we were two domestic US lawyers sat in, in the United States, the, the solution to virtually any problem on an estate planning or a tax uh, matter would be a trust. You know, that's just the first tool that we reach for. And there are many, many different kinds of trusts. The problem is in this country, when you overlay the UK, it doesn't quite work out. But when it comes to fairly straightforward estate planning, trusts are really, really valuable instruments to provide the flexibility that we talked about before. Again, this is the trade-off of complexity for flexibility. And sometimes clients will say, I don't want to trust. It's too much. But if we think about what a trust is at its base, it's really about three things. An asset that's being held, a beneficiary who it's being held for, and a trustee who's holding it. That's really the three requirements of a trust at its basic level. Somebody once explained to me, um, you know, example, if you were to go to the restroom and you asked somebody to hold your purse 
while they while you were in the restroom and you were going to take it back when you came back that's trust law in operation, right? You haven't given away the assets to anyone. You fully expect to have the ability to take it back in the future. Um, but it's just severing the kind of you know legal title from the beneficial title. But at its base, it's a very simplistic thing. Um, in practice, it's not as easy as I've made it out. I appreciate that. Running a trust does have complexities. Um, but at its base, it's just about holding assets uh, on behalf of someone else. And when we think about that in our standard estate planning. And again, in our sample, we've you know, imagined a spouse and then children. Of course, that's not always the case. There's not always a spouse. Sometimes it's a partner. Sometimes it's neither. Sometimes there are no children. Sometimes it's family members or friends. It might be appropriate in all of those cases as well. But certainly in a family context where you've got a spouse uh, and children, the trust is important because if nothing else, it gives everyone an opportunity to take a deep breath at a moment of potentially great tragedy, to look at the circumstances, you know, look at everybody's situation, potentially rearrange some things um, before the assets pass on. A will, it, if we went back to the very basic will that said everything to, you know, um, I don't know, Battersea home for dogs and then 50-50 for my two kids, um, that's incredibly rigid. Assets that pass on trust held for the surviving spouse with the option to benefit the children, um, yes, that means that there's something between the surviving spouse and the assets. There's a third party, a trustee. There's an entity, whether you can see it or not, a trust that exists. But really, the trustees are just holding that asset for the benefit of all of those individuals. Everyone can come around the table and say, you know what, actually, this is an appropriate um, entity for our circumstances. It works for tax. It works for vulnerable people. It works to control against all of the 4Ds that you talked about earlier. Let's keep it. It might be the case they come together and say, this thing is no longer fit for purpose, or this was for a scenario that, that didn't come to pass. Um, let's tear it apart and get the assets outright in our own hands. The trust allows that conversation to happen. And without it, we're back to the will that says everything outright to the two kids, and you can't back that up the trust allows you flexibility, and maybe it runs for one year, maybe it runs for 10, maybe it, it, it never is funded at all. Uh, but the inclusion in the estate plan, I think, is a really important conversation because, uh, as a lawyer I used to work with said, you know, it, it's very difficult to unring that bell. You know, if you don't have the trust included, it's really hard to get assets into a trust if it didn't exist in the first place, especially in this country. It's very easy, relatively speaking, to distribute assets out of the trust. Uh, to the beneficiaries, if it's no longer fit for purpose, or if it's gone past its expiry date, and you know that's the way I continue to think about it with my clients. Better to have it and not need it than vice versa. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, and from a complexity perspective, yeah, there's a lot more language in the will. There's all sorts of provisions about what the trustees can do. It's no longer just about holding a purse for a moment in time. It's about can you invest in S corp stock and can you buy and trade crypto and all of these things. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of language in there, you know, that adds bulk and length to your will. You know, from a cost perspective, it's not going to be so much different than uh, providing something that's that's more straightforward. But the flexibility it gives you is enormous. I, I guess the, the the final couple of things that are worth saying is, you know, you in making a will, you are inevitably putting your future in the hands of a, a competent, I hope, a competent estate planner. 
um, you know, there is an element of trust involved with these things, and you come to a, you know, a, a reputable, um, uh, a reputable attorney such as Chris, um, you know, who has seen a lot of this before. You know, there is always going to be elements of faith placed in someone's hand to say, look, in my experience, we, I'm qualified to say it, this is the thing I think you should need. You know, there is going to be complexity. There is no expectation that you, you know, but no one will understand how this all works after my death. That is, of course, why lawyers are around. That's why accountants exist. You know, in those times of grief and tumult and complexity, you know, often you want lawyers involved anyway, just to help smooth over the process. Um, and so, you know, take our advice that what we have recommended is going to be the most appropriate in your circumstances. And uh, in 99 times, 999 times out of 100 or 1,000, you know, that is going to work for you. For those circumstances where, as Chris rightly points out, there is going to be those discussions, this is why the selection of executors and trustees is so important. The word trustee has the word trust in it for a reason. You have to entrust your post-death arrangements uh, to those whom you trust uh, entirely would uh, govern and manage your affairs in your absence to the best interests of those who you have designated your assets should pass to. That might be the same beneficiaries. It could be the wife and children, the husband and children. It could be a close family friend. It could be the professional who drafted the will in the first place. Um, but provided you have everyone involved who needs to be involved and provided you have the appropriate spread of interests diversified amongst people so that you don't have you know, the guards guarding the guards, um, everything is possible we will always try and create the maximum flexibility at the greatest tax efficiency whilst keeping it as simple as possible. And that sort of three-part uh, balancing act is something that Chris and I spend you know, large parts of our day uh, sort of discussing with clients. Uh, Chris, any, any final closing remarks, anything you, you feel that our audience needs to know? Well, I think, you know, if we bring it back to the very beginning. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, various outcomes and, and various issues. Uh, and, and I think this just underscores, you know, how many variables that will, there are that will be determined at the relevant moment. You know, um, if we had a fact, if we had a case study that said, you know, John Doe died at age 50 with this much money, kids at this age, a spouse, you know, and these wishes, we could draft up the exact you know, a, a will that would accommodate that exactly in probably two and a half, three pages. Um, but we don't know that. And so we're trying to cover off those eventualities. Um, but at the end of the day, the questions for the client, yes, there'll be questions about, do you, th you know, think a trust is appropriate? We'll walk you through that. But in many cases, you know, certainly with clients of means or, or unique circumstances that are somewhat difficult. And by the way, having assets split across across two countries is default more difficult than usual. So it's bringing you into the world of trusts you know, right from the outset, uh, even without something more difficult like um, unusual assets or children from a previous marriage or, you know, a family member who has, uh, you know, special needs, you know, any of those things is starting to push more and more to a more complex document again, to preserve that flexibility. But, but at the end of the day, the questions are really, what do you have? Where do you want it to go? What are your values? And you know, who do you want to stand in to look after all of those things and administer them in a way that's as close to what you would have done as possible? 
you know, the client doesn't have to think about tax very much. They don't have to think about whether or not you can invest in S-Corps. That stuff is going to be kind of large part behind the scenes. The questions that the client will need to be faced with are, are generally, who would you like to be the executive of your estate? Who should be the person to administer your assets? Um, you know, if there's a trust involved, who should be the trustee if it's somebody different than the executor? Who should the guardians be? And what considerations should you should you think about when coming up with that person? Where should the assets go? Um, you know, are there people outside the immediate family orbit who should benefit? Are you charitably minded? In the event that something happens to you and your children, your spouse, leaving no heirs, who should the default beneficiaries be? Is it charity? Is it brother, sister, parents, cousins, friends, trusted lawyers? Um, you know, these are the considerations that, that really the client is going to focus on. So, yeah, we'll talk about tax. Yeah, we'll talk about structure. We'll talk about two wills, one will. But at the end of the day, the considerations for the clients are the ones that would have been, um, even with the most basic estate planning, uh, the most, most basic will planning. What do you have? Where do you want it to go? How do you want it to get there? And who do you want to help in that process? Um, and from that, we'll construct the documents that achieve it in a way that, as you say, is, is tax efficient um, and is as simplistic as possible uh, and as flexible as possible. Um, and hopefully come to, to something that, that the client can feel at ease about, inevitably put a copy in their sock drawer and, and hopefully not look at it again until, as you say, there's a life change or five years have passed or the tax laws have changed. Um, but it will be that peace of mind knowing that no matter what happens, for the most part, in that five-year period, that document, for all its complexity, is flexible enough to account for those changes. And so they don't have to worry in the interim about, should we revise it? You know, is 100000 too much? What do we do? Those documents they can put in a soft drawer and forget about and get on with their life. And at some point they'll be needed. And and when that time comes, um, you know, the document will be the, the right one for them. I'm, I'm thinking of printing up a new business card that sort of says, you know, Aiden Grant's new Bacama of fears, you know, easing easing concerns and anxieties. You know, I, exactly the day is, is what we're here for. Um, Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, Chris McAmore of McAmore Conchnick LLP. Uh, U.S. attorneys based here in London. Uh, I've been Aidan Grant, Collier Bristow, LLP. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys, uh, those listening. If you have any questions, um, you can Google us. Um, you'll be able to find us. Uh, and uh, look forward to uh, hearing from everyone again in the near future. Thanks very much. <laughs>